Hey, parents and little adventurers. Ever wondered where hot dogs come from? Dive into a world of wonder with the new children's book about cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture? What's that? It's the science behind tomorrow's foods. Discover the journey of a family barbecue in a way that's fun, educational, and downright tasty. Grab your copy of Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? on Amazon today. Yum! The future sounds so delicious. Curious for more? Visit www.hotdog.fyi. Happy reading! Thanks for joining us on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. We're excited to have Keith Zackheim as the guest for today's episode. Keith is the Chief Executive Officer at Antenna Group, a leader in integrated public relations and marketing for innovators in energy, sustainability, smart technology, and life sciences. Keith has earned an industry-wide reputation for savvy, strategic counsel, forging deep partnerships and business connections, and leading the firm during an era of unprecedented organic and acquisition-driven growth. Keith also hosts Raising Your Antenna, a tech podcast exploring the latest trends and news shaping the business-to-business technology industry. A sought-after expert on crisis management, Keith has been a panelist and featured speaker at conferences worldwide. He was one of the youngest elected officials in New Jersey, having served on the Paramus Borough Council, recipient of the prestigious Wexner Graduate Fellowship for Jewish Communal Leadership. Keith graduated with honors from the Yeshiva College, studied towards a master's in history, and received rabbinic ordination from Yeshiva University in New York City. Keith, I would like to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. Alex, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Keith, tell us a little bit about your background and what your team has been focusing on over at the Antenna Group. Thanks, Alex. Yeah. Again, my name is Keith Zackheim, and I'm the CEO of Antenna Group. Antenna Group is a digital marketing and public relations agency which focuses in the business-to-business technology industry. And within business-to-business technology, we really focus in four areas. So clean energy or energy technology, mobility or auto technology, early stage drug development in life science and real estate technology. And we provide our clients with pretty much the full suite of marketing and public relations services, including media relations and content development and thought leadership and SEO and pay-per-click advertising and paid search and paid social. So pretty much anything our clients need to make an impact on their business-to-business technology audience, we have the platforms and the expertise to do that marketing and public relations world. And you You are also a podcast host yourself. Tell us a little bit about the Raising Your Antenna podcast and really how your experience has been so far running the show. Yeah, Alex, I am a podcast host, and I hope that uh, I guess when I'm no longer on this planet in 100 years from now or what have you, and uh, on my gravestone, it won't just be a public relations and marketing person, but it'll be podcast host as well. I am super enjoying being the host of a podcast. I decided to do it really for two reasons. 
One was just kind of from a personal standpoint. I'm a huge podcast listener. So pretty much my family can't stand the fact that anytime we take a road trip, it's podcast after podcast and they can't get music on the radio. But as the driver of the car, I, I get to choose what goes what goes over the airways. I love podcasts and I've always kind of fancied myself as something of a journalist. I don't own a radio station right now, so I can't give myself a radio show. I'm not a newspaper columnist yet, but I can have a podcast. And it's given me the opportunity to really interact with and meet super interesting people who have a lot to say and really interesting ideas about the industries that I work in. So Raising Your Antenna focuses on, again, kind of B2B technology industries. And we bring on podcast, either founders, CEOs, and investors in the spaces in which we work in. So it's been fantastic and I really enjoy it. And I'm sure you've had a similar experience to mine that it's also a fantastic marketing tool. I enjoy creating the content and then my team and I are able to disseminate the podcast through various social media channels and then our distribution list. So it's been great for marketing and personally very satisfying. You said that you listen to a lot of podcasts. What are some of your favorite podcasts that you listen to? Okay, so there's a lot of them. I'm kind of into philosophy. You know, Sam Harris, Waking Up with Sam Harris is one of my favorites. Um, super enjoy the NPR, so like Hidden Brain is a great podcast. I like The Partially Examined Life is really good. That's uh, kind of another philosophy podcast. And then I also am a big sports fan, Spitting Chicklets, which is a bit irreverent, but a fantastic hockey podcast is great. Love Malcolm Gladwell, love Freakonomics Radio. There's a lot of them I listen to, and um, it's great. It's a great way to pass time as you're driving the roads and uh, nothing to do. So your team looks at a lot of the latest innovations in, like you mentioned, energy, life sciences, and tech. What are some of the latest kind of technologies that have come to market that you personally get excited about? Sure. What I think is kind of cool about our agency is the four areas that we work in all seem to have kind of formed around this new idea that everything is going to be decentralized and distributed. Uh, kind of big institutions and big business and everything that have been centralized in the future are going to be less so. So what I mean by that is, for example, in the energy world, our energy needs and our energy use are all controlled by utilities. But what we've seen over the last number of years and going forward is that's going to be less so in the future future as energy becomes more distributed and more decentralized, right? So in your home today, you can have a solar array, you can have a Tesla power wall, so you can generate energy, you can store that energy in the house, then you have all sorts of software and hardware solutions in your house to manage that energy, make it more efficient. You can then put your electric vehicle and charge it in your house and maybe take some of the energy off the power wall. Within the house or within your business or within a commercial building or maybe within a corporate park, all those kinds of places now can become a lot more independent as it comes to energy. But that's also true of transportation. People will use public transportation, but also we do a lot of work with autonomous vehicles and we see the future of, of transportation that's going to be people getting up by autonomous vehicles and companies that own fleets. But you're not going to have to store the vehicle in your house. You are going to be able to maybe take a scooter or an e-bike uh, for that last mile of transportation from either where the autonomous vehicle dropped you off or where you got off of the subway or bus. So again, it's going to be more options, more multimodal, going to be cleaner. You know, we find those to be really exciting trends in mobility and really real estate technology. There's tons of new technologies that are disrupting how we go about buying real estate, how we go about finding a new apartment or new office building. Once, if you're an owner of a, of a building, if you're an owner of commercial real estate, there are now tons of different softwares and hardware so you can control the services that your tenants are, are having access to, that you can control energy uses, you can control the kind of sustainable environment of your office and your building. Throughout really all of our practice areas, we're just finding ways that technology and data are giving 
people an opportunity to really control their own lives without relying on bigger institutions or centralized institutions to do it. And it's super exciting. And again, they're all disruptive technologies, but not just to use kind of, you know, one of these terms that people love to throw out disruptive, but it really is. It's changing the model. It's changing the paradigm of how people live, how people drive, how people work, how people do medicine. We see a lot of common themes within all of our practice areas as communicators, as marketers. It's a super, super fascinating time to be living in and and really exciting. We love it. At your agency, did you start with one of those practice areas or one of those sectors before jumping into some of the other ones? Yes. I personally come out of the public affairs and issue advocacy space. I've always enjoyed when it comes to marketing and public relations, we've always called front page issues. The consumer marketing world is an exciting one as well, and it's a great business. I've never really wanted to do consumer marketing. I'd much rather work on issues that I find to be a little more substantive and potentially a little more impact on the world. I've chosen verticals that I think, again, are disruptive, are really all front page issues, are really going to impact how we live, how we behave, how we organize within communities, within societies, within countries. And that's really kind of stuff that we focused on. When you guys expanded or broke into a new industry, what was that process like? Did you bring on experts to work with you or did you start picking up projects in that particular industry? Like, for example, when you added life sciences. Yeah. In order to really thrive in a specific vertical, you need to have domain expertise, right? So as a public relations firm and as a marketing agency, we need to have tactical prowess, right? So we need to know how to write that press release. We need to know how to pitch media or we know how to structure that LinkedIn campaign. So we need to do all the tactical stuff. But because we're in B2B industries, which are substantive, which do have their own nomenclature, their own language, their own nuances, we want to make sure that we have people who are working for us have domain expertise in those spaces as well. Well, whenever we start a new vertical, we hire people who have significant experience in that space. And if you look at our four verticals we work in and the professionals that work within those four verticals, most of them have both academic and professional backgrounds that relate to their space. And if they don't, it's because they've made a conscientious choice to transition into a new area. And again, usually they, at that point, they come to us ready, having an interest, a passion and some type of expertise. And you know, they go from there. Yeah, I think the first thing that we do when we're breaking into a new vertical is, okay, let's go find somebody to run the practice who, again, has that domain expertise, who has those relationships with the key influencers in the space, and then let him or her go build their team again around that same methodology of domain expertise for, and obviously being a really good communication professional as well. Two questions. Is this a technology that you're excited about personally? And the other question being, what do you think about nomenclature in this sense? And is it important for the nomenclature to be marketable right now, or is it just too early? Yes, personally, I am excited about it. I'm excited about it really from three perspectives. As somebody who has kind of moved away from red meat over the last number of years, mainly because from a health perspective and just a digestive perspective, it hasn't really worked for me. But I do like meat and I do like a good steak and a good burger. If cellular-based meat promises health benefits that currently, let's call it legacy meat or traditional meat does not have, then that excites me. From an environmental standpoint, I mean, the environmental footprint when it comes to uh, raising cattle uh, and all the costs associated with that, whether it's land, whether it's methane releases, whether it's water runoff, there's tons of environmental costs associated with livestock. So that certainly is something as well that I find to be intriguing and promising. Animal cruelty as well. I don't know where I rank in terms of the kind of how much consciousness animal
animals have, but I think they have some and any type of cruelty as a human being helps me. So again, taking that off the table as well, I think is fantastic. And then as, as somebody who observes kosher dietary laws, I think it's also just a fascinating opportunity. Again, I don't know how it's going to be settled by the rabbinic authorities, whether or not it's going to be A, considered kosher, and if it is considered kosher, will it be considered a meat product or a dairy product or none of the above? But all those things are fascinating as well. And uh, so I look forward to seeing some of the rabbinic discourse around that. I'm very excited about it. And I think most people would be intrigued. Now, the question is, I'm sure we'll get to in the podcast, will people adopt a different question? And will people begin to become consumers of this is a different question. But I think it's definitely intriguing and it raises a lot of really important issues. As far as nomenclature, look, I mean, I'm a marketer, right? So I believe everything is about words and everything is about priming. And uh, clearly the legacy meat companies, and, and one of the things I think that everybody has to realize when it comes to cellular-based meat, you're not just trying to educate people that it's okay to eat, but you're also fighting against a $68 billion domestic industry in this country that produced, I think, 25 billion pounds of red meat. A lot of those companies and ranchers and cattle types are not going to take kindly to a disruption like cellular-based meat. What it's called, which I understand is being fought right now in state houses, I'm sure in the future in courts as well, can you call it meat? And then if you can't, what can you call it? Those are super important and legacy meat companies understand that, which is why they're fighting so hard to be able to kind of have a monopoly over calling product meat. Words matter. Words have tremendous impact on our brains, on how our neurons fire. I think that for this industry to succeed, it's going to have to figure out right words to use and then be incredibly aggressive about how it educates around those words. Have you seen any examples of a technology that is pretty much flushed out and works or it doesn't become successful in the market because it's been poorly marketed or in a way kind of shunned from society. A lot of times we bring up the reference and I don't know if it's directly relevant of the electric car, right? The electric car kind of came to market, kind of flopped a decade later. Now it's becoming a lot more interesting and much more marketable. Do you think that could happen here? There are two things that I think ultimately will decide the future of this industry especially if the industry decides that it wants to make this an alternative to meat for everybody, right? So there's two paths the industry can go down. It can decide that we want to be kind of a almond milk, kale type of product that you can find at Whole Foods at really high price points. And really, let's call it people on the coast will buy this. And you can make nice business that way. And all of the differentiators, whether it's animal cruelty and environment and health, those things are really compelling to people the coastal elites, let's call them, okay? And you can make a nice business that way and away you go to Whole Foods. If, however, the vision ultimately is to replace traditional meat, traditional beef with cellular-based meat, then there's really one question that's gonna matter, ultimately, is price. It's gonna be about scale and price. And if you can get the price down to a price point where consumers are not gonna have to pay more for it, then at least you have level playing field and now you can begin to make the arguments for why yours is better. Meaning once it's not going to hurt your pocket, then you may be open to health issues. You may be open to environmental issues. But if it's going to cost you more for most people in this country who are shopping at Walmart, not at Whole Foods, cost you know, and price matters. I think that's super important. And a good analog for that, I think solar energy. Nobody can argue with the fact that solar energy is better for the environment. Okay, Whether or not you think that global warming is a big problem, a small problem, whether or not you think pollution is a problem, whether or not, I mean, all of there's tons of environmental issues that come about because of fossil fuels. That's indisputable. I think everybody would agree to that. The question always was, 
if I want to fill my car or I want to heat my home, I'm not going to pay 10x or 5x the cost because of the environment. I got to worry about my family. That's number one. So it's a pocketbook issue. What the solar industry has been able to do over the past number of years is get down to price parity, right? Get down to a point. Solar energy is going to be cost compatible or even in some cases cheaper now than fossil fuels and traditional energy sources. Now you can start to make the other arguments once it's no longer a pocketbook issue, right? Now you can have the opportunity to convince people that it's better to use solar energy because of the environmental costs. But that's only when you got down to a price parity point. And I think that's going to be a similar type of issue for the cellular the meat industry is, you know, what I'm seeing right now is the hope is to get a burger down to $10 a patty. That's not going to do it for the Walmart shopper. If you want to convince a Walmart shopper this is the way to go and become ubiquitous in that way, it's going to be really, really important to get the cost and scale issue down. And from a B2B standpoint, for big players such as fast food industry, McDonald's, of course, McDonald's, Burger King, we really do need to get that cost down. Are there any other ways to kind of get into B2B space with this type of technology, cost aside? And I guess what I'm thinking of is what is the best way to really scale up if this technology is available? Yes. A couple of things, I guess. One is, talk about B2B. There's two segments, I guess, that this industry will be looking at. One is is the big ag guys, right? So like I saw Tyson made an investment in Memphis Meats. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean Tyson is fully committed to cellular meat, but it does broadcast that they're going to hedge. This is a way to put a stake in the ground and for them to say, okay, let's see what happens because if it blows up and it does great, we don't want to be on the sidelines. So there's an openness to it to say, okay, let's see what the economic forces ultimately do. So they've made their investment and I think you'll see other big ag companies doing that as well. Similar to how you saw early on in the solar boom, you know, in the mid 2000s, early 2000s, you saw some of the big oil companies and big energy companies make investments in solar as well to see what that was going to look like. Then you have the McDonald's, the Burger Kings, the fast food chains that are catering to consumers. And again, these are consumers that can afford a $10, $12 hamburger. Right now, as far as I can tell, McDonald's and Burger King, they have their own supply chain, right? So they're vertically integrated. They have their own production. They have their own ranching. And they can control the kind of meat that they want, the quality of the meat. That is working for them today. If there is a demand from consumers at some point, which comes from the ground up, that people want this, they will respond. The same way fast food restaurants are responding to healthy food items. Every day you see another healthier food item on McDonald's or Burger King, salads. When people wanted premium coffee, that started to show up. So they'll respond, but it's going to be the industry is going to have to push consumers and the consumers then will have to make that clear to the bigger companies like McDonald's and Burger King. Again, this is going to become the Walmart versus Whole Foods issue. Is this going to be a product that people in Walmart can go and pay for within their weekly food budget or not? And if the answer is yes, ultimately, then I'm sure McDonald's and Burger King will have their big sell Mac or whatever you want to call it down the road. From an entrepreneurial perspective, there are business folks interested in getting into food tech and scientists interested in starting startups. What advice do you have for those folks that are interested in making the jump to start a company and really become entrepreneurs in the food tech space or just in really in general? 
This industry, like all disruptive industries, if you're going to put time and money into it, obviously you need to differentiate, right? Food to a certain degree is a commodity when it comes to things like beef and chicken and fish, right? How you can differentiate that is something that's really important. Whoever gets to scale first, as I keep repeating, is going to win, right? Because scale gets you cost. The other thing, though, I think that someone pointed this out to me a few weeks ago, which I think is important, is entrepreneurs, especially when it, when they're in disruptive industries, don't always pay attention as they should to the regulatory environment. And I think this is an industry where if you want to make a smart investment, keep your ear to the ground when it comes to regulatory issues that are uh, simmering, whether it's in state houses, in the Congress, or in federal agencies, because a lot of this stuff's going to get decided there. And an analog to another part of my business, which I think is important to keep in mind, is in the autonomous vehicle space. On the one hand, autonomous vehicle companies are legacy companies, right? Combustion engine cars. But there are other forces at work that potentially could stymie the industry. One of them being the fact that autonomous vehicles are going to take a lot of people out of the workforce. So trucking is the number one employer in this country. And then you have, of course, the rideshare companies, a lot of people driving Ubers and Lyfts. Well, you have autonomous vehicles, a lot of people are going to be displaced no jobs. Well, government has a vested interest in making sure people are employed and government will do a lot in order to stymie innovation to keep people employed. I think in your business as well, I mean, you know, there are a lot of ranchers, there are a lot of people who are involved in the food services business who with cellular meat may be displaced and out of jobs. If thinking about that, if you're not thinking about the fact that government has a huge incentive to try and slow down that innovation because they want to maintain jobs, if you're not thinking about that, I don't think you're being responsible. Uh, so there's a lot of issues that are around the periphery of your investment and of the industry that ultimately, if you're not thinking about, they're not part of your calculus, could surface one day and really hurt you. And on to kind of like the regulatory aspects, one thing that I've learned is that there is a heavy push and, and lots of lobbying to say that this should be called this or this should be done or this should not be done. How often these lobbyist groups make uh, impact on the way that you have relationships with clients? Any comments on just lobbying or nonprofit organizations pushing in a certain direction? This is America, right? So the Federalist Papers, James Madison set this up so that you'd have competing interests constantly lobbying, and that would slow down any radical reforms or radical changes. So we want to have things that are incremental and slow changes. And the way we do that is you have lobbyists of both sides who hash things out in Washington or in state capitals and try to bring things along slowly. Every industry I work in, whether it's energy, mobility, life science, I mean, we're always having, as I said, an ear to the ground to try to pick up some intel and the latest in terms of what's being debated and what's being considered as far as regulation or legislation. I think, again, an interesting example that I, I know that everybody in the cellular-based meat industry is, is mindful is GMOs. Genetically modified fruits and vegetables have been, for years, uh, been the focus of massive, massive lobbying efforts to undermine their credibility, whether it's health has been where the anti-GMO lobbyists have gone, and I guess unintended consequences, right? So people really not knowing what the long-term effect will be. The GMO companies got tarred with that, didn't get out ahead of it quickly enough, and now have been fighting from behind for a long time. I think that cellular-based meat will have the same exact problem. When you look at the surveys, and I think Michigan State came out with a, a widely cited survey right now about people's attitudes towards cellular-based meat. I found was that, A, obviously the way you ask the question will impact how people respond, but a third of people surveyed said that they would be willing to try it without knowing much about it. Two-thirds, the remaining two-thirds that wouldn't try it, I think a significant percentage they would try it if there was better education about it. And that really puts the onus on the industry 
to educate. But you got to educate and do it quickly because the way the mind works is negative things stick a lot more than positive things do. And if you see the ground to the opponents, if you see the ground to those who are going to say, hey, cellular-based meat is no different than GMO, it's it's horm- it's things being bioengineered in a way that's going to be unhealthy for us, that's going to stick. And it's going to be a lot more difficult to win that debate down the road. So they got to get out ahead, can't cede any land on that, can't cede territory, and make sure that they're educating, educating, and educating. One last question I have is regards to, I guess, popularity of food tech and and biotech. Have you seen any particular increase of this type of thing? Would you say that it's been pretty consistent? I think what, what we're all a victim of who we speak with and what publications we read. So the stuff that I read in the four walls of my life, I think I've definitely seen an uptick in a conversation around, you know, kind of what they call functional foods, right? I mean, and cellular-based meats is a great example of, of functional foods. So the question becomes, are we eating steak because of what steak is made up of, whether it's the proteins, the fats, the taste, that type of stuff? Or are we eating steak because there's an emotional attachment that we have to eating steak? Steak. And whether it's memory, whether it's nostalgia, whether it's our mother's recipes, what have you, steak's a big part of our lives. And why that makes a difference is because if it's just a matter of the nutrients and the building blocks of steak, well, we can recreate that in a laboratory. And that's what functional foods, foods are, right? So like Silicon Valley, you know, the soylent revolution, right? So people think they can have drink all their meals out of a bottle. They'll get the same nutrients. They'll be as healthy as anybody else, which is true, but they won't be having a food experience. I think you see a lot of conversation around that, and I think we'll see it around cellular-based meat as well, is how much of food is just about making sure that our bodies work, right? We're a machine and we need fuel. We've got to build our proteins and we've got to have our fats and we've got to have all the different nutrients to keep us going. How much is that and how much of it is we like to eat? We all have our inner foodie and will functional foods be able to fill that type of need for human beings? So I read a lot about that. There's a lot of venture capital money going into this industry because it's a huge industry, right? This is hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars a year just in the US. So you're getting to trillions when you think about it worldwide. Uh, So any technology that promises to disrupt and take away significant market share, if when that case can be built, money will be thrown at them in the same way that in transportation right now, money is being thrown at companies that are also looking to dislodge a trillion dollar incumbent. That's the Hondas and Fords and, and Chevrolets of the world. It's not surprising there's lots of money being thrown there. And I think it's super exciting. And so thanks for having me. I appreciated the conversation and look forward to chatting in person and following along with all the different developments in the industry. You can learn more about the Antenna Group at www.antennagroup.com and find the Raising Your Antenna podcast through that page. Is there another URL for the podcast? get it right through antennagroup.com. And Alec, I will publicly now invite you to join me on my podcast. You know, I can be in the chair of the questioner and, and the onus will be on you to fill up all the time. Keith, are there any last insights that you might have for the listeners today? Exciting times, exciting times across all of our industries. And we you know with change and disruption comes also anxiety and, uh, and fear. And, and let's hope that we can all lean more towards the excitement and anticipation side of things and the fear and anxiety. I guess that's, that's how I would end. Keith, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your insight on the Cultured Meat and Future Food podcast. Yeah, thank you. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to seeing you on future episodes. I'm honored to be on the Raising Your Antenna podcast with Keith. That episode is live now, and we'll publish a link on our main website. Thanks for being a listener. Since we started the show, we've definitely learned a lot about cell-based meat, but also a lot about podcasting. We'd love to get your feedback, whether you have comments on the questions, the ads, audio quality, whatever it may be. Submit your feedback to futurefoodshow.com. Special thanks to all of our guests on the show. 
Julian Zvorskov for making the intro tune, Anita Brolux and Florian Schmidt for drafting the questions, Adrian Medea-Dipura and Cyrus Manuran for editing, Yuri Kleben for outreach, Nick Talrea for legal counsel. And most importantly, thank you for listening and spreading the word about cell-based meat and future food technologies.